welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 77, The Holy Roman Empire, again, the second time. No, we mean it this time, really. Before we get into today's episode, just as a reminder, we are looking for interviews in October. So if you know anyone who has done their work on Germany for their thesis or their doctorate, have them reach out to me or give me their information and I'll gladly reach out to them about setting up an interview to come out in October. We're celebrating new historians in the world of Germany during this month and I want to get as many as we can. Okay, quick announcement over. Now, for the refresher, we are dealing with Otto the Great, the Saxon who for the first few years of his reign was under constant threat of civil war and rebellion. The same old, same old issue that every new king in this age is having to deal with. However, we have seen him win war after war and start to reunite the realm under his rule, reversing his father's more laissez-faire style. Now, having subdued his own lands, having dealt with the Magyars and the Slavs, and even putting down the French, well now it seems that we need to deal with Italy. But before we get into what Otto is going to do in Italy, we need to set up the scene in Italy. When the empire basically just dissolved in 888 with the death of the Charles the Fat, Italy was invested with their own kings all the way through till 924. And in 924, Berengar I was assassinated, ending the last of the family line of Charlemagne in Italy. He had a long, long list of competitors who had hated his policies, especially with dealing with the Magyars, and his inability to assert dominance within the peninsula. With his death, King Rudolf II of Burgundy came to power in Italy and established dominance in the north. However, Rudolf was unable to assert himself completely within the region, and we see a diminishing return on the crown's power. The more the crown is invested within Italy, the less power they actually have. The power is being given to the Italian nobles, who sit amongst themselves bickering and fighting and setting up shadow governments under King Rudolf's name. In December of 950, there was the death of Lothar, who had been a puppet of Berengar, not Berengar, who had been assassinated as the last member of Charlemagne, but Berengar, a noble of Italy, and had been the mayor of the palace. Anyway, with Lothar's death, Berengar decided to become king rather than the power behind the throne. Now, he had come to power ruling Iveria in 923, thanks to his father, and he had married the niece of the king of Italy at the time. In 940, he had led the nobles in revolt against the Burgundians, who had replaced the Charlemagne line, and while technically defeated, he had not been overthrown. Hugh, who had been the king at the time, had tried to get Otto on his side, tried to get Otto to support him and reaffirm his control of Italy. But Otto, as we saw last episode, was a little bit busy trying to stop his own kingdom from blowing up and wasn't going to get involved in the peninsula. Hugh was unable to defeat Berengar and was eventually routed and forced to surrender all of his power to Berengar. Hugh and his son Lothar would keep the crown, but Berengar would hold on to the power. And this is how the relationship would go 
until December of 950. See, Berengar, even though he was the power behind the throne, was not happy enough with this. And over the next 10 years, from defeating Hugh to the assassination of Lothar, he would take more and more power for himself from the king and from the other nobles, eventually isolating himself from everyone at court. And so with the death of Lothar in 950, apparently by poison, uh, Berengar became the man on the throne and instantly realized that this was a terrible idea because now all the knives could easily come out and be pointed at him. You see, beforehand, with Lothar on the throne, they could at least pretend that Berengar wasn't the power that he was, and they could always try to find a way to get rid of him. But now that he was on the throne, especially after so blatantly killing the last king, yeah, no one was wanting to keep him there. And so Berengar realized that he had a lot, a lot of opposition to him. However, rather than accepting the fact that this was a mistake and trying to fix it by surrendering the throne and, you know, running for his life, uh, he decided that the best way to deal with this was to tie himself with Adelaide. And Adelaide is a rather important woman to our story and someone that we need to introduce at this point. So Adelaide had been born in modern-day Switzerland as the daughter of Rudolf II of Burgundy, the one who would be taking over the Italian kingdoms. And when he died in 937, Hugh of Provence took his throne and married his son Lothar to Adelaide, which would give his claim to power an air of legitimacy. So we have Adelaide being related directly to Rudolf, the first king. Then we have her being the daughter-in-law to the second king, and then the wife of the third king. So it's not that surprising that Berengar realizes that Adelaide is kind of the central thing that he needs to hold on to in order to claim the throne for himself. Now, Adelaide, when she had married Lothar, had only been 15 years old, and she'd been thrust into this world of politics and daggers that represented Italy at this time. And she had watched rather unhappily as her husband had been played by the puppet strings of Berengar. And while her relationship with Lothar was a good one, and actually saw a daughter being born, who later in life would become the Queen of France with King Lothar, clearly a different Lothar, but anyway, despite the fact that she had a good relationship with Lothar, she had always, always hated Berengar for his control over the throne and probably, you know, for killing her husband. With the death of Lothar, Adelaide held a central point within the kingdom. She was a center of legitimacy to the throne. She was the gravitas that represented the crown for the Italians. And if one was to rule Italy, one must have her support and approval. And she knew this. So, when Berengar decided to seek her out, hoping to marry her to his son and secure his own legitimacy, Adelaide said, no, screw you, I hate your gut, and immediately reached out for support among the other nobles and Otto. Berengar did not take this kindly and locked her up in Guardia. Guardia, located in Verona, was a small town with a beautiful lake and apparently an easy place for an escape. Because after four months locked away, Adelaide would escape thanks to the help of her confessor. She would flee to a nearby fortress along with some of her supporters and wait out a reply from Otto. 
her insistence to Otto for support would become a little bit more hastened and desperate when word reached her that Berengar was planning to lay siege to her castle and take out her defenders. Now, Otto had been keeping an eye on Italy. There is some evidence that Berengar was his man, his supporter. I mean, after all, he did not go and help Hugh during his times of plight against Berengar. I mean, to be fair, Otto had his own issues, but it also didn't hurt that Hugh was out of the way and there's this chaos among the Italian realms to Otto's south. But Berengar was not a big friend of Otto's as the years had progressed. Power was starting to consolidate under Berengar, and that represented a threat to any interest that Otto had south of the Alps. There was also the point that if if he could somehow get Adelaide to support Otto, to support himself, well, then he could rule Italy. He wouldn't have to worry about keeping Italy disunited and disjointed. He could just keep it under his thumb. And, as luck would have it, Adelaide was in a really desperate situation. And in her final letters, she offered not only her hand in marriage to Otto, but her support for any claim to the throne of Italy that he wanted to pursue. And it is this that finally got Otto off his butt. In September 951, Otto gathers a large army to move south. Now, this had technically been jump-started by the Bavarians, who had marched south, capturing Aquilia, and by Otto's own son, Ludolf, who had marched on his own and been forced back. Now, Otto, of course, was not happy about this because neither Bavaria nor Ludolf had should move without his direct orders, but he was going to let it slide for now. This little movement by Bavaria and Ludolf could be seen as the beginning of the problems that will lead to the rebellion. With the arrival of Otto's troops, Berengar was unable to draw upon any support to resist, and within the month of September, the capital fell to Otto. Otto was met with open arms by the court, who were more than happy to see the backside of Berengar, and by the smiling face of Adelaide, who was ready to keep her end of the bargain. And so, while Berengar waited in the Alps, hoping for a chance of revenge, Otto would spend the rest of the fall and winter of 951 winning the hand of his new bride and wearing the iron crown of the Lombards. Italy, however, was not going to be a land so easily kept. First, he only ruled northern Italy, as the Pope, who we will discuss in a minute, ruled the central region, and to the south laid the threat of the Muslims and the Byzantines. Second, the nobles, who had been used to power within the region, being in their own hands rather than in the hands of a strong king, were not happy with Berengar's stripping of their power, true, but also were not going to be happy if Otto was going to try to centralize the Italian countryside as he had been doing in Germany. And finally, unlike in Germany, Italy was not a land of resources for Otto. He had no deep connections, nor loyal people he could easily call upon to draw the resources needed to keep hold of the land. If a war came out, he was going to need help from the north of the Alps. He was going to find very little of it south of it. Now, one way that Otto figured he could deal with this was to set up some legitimacy. Yes, he had Adelaide, but Adelaide could only take him so far. What he needed was to have the imperial authority, the imperial crown, which had been long denied to his family. 
He needed the crown of Charlemagne, and to get that, he needed the church's approval. This means that we need to talk about the Papal States. So, the Papal States is very much different from the one that we know nowadays. First of all, it's just called the Vatican now, but back then it was its own political country. The Vatican, Rome, was the center of a political state with its tendrils throughout the rest of Europe. It controlled central and parts of southern Italy, and the Pope was a king within his own right. Yes, he was a spiritual leader, but he was also a secular leader. This led to severe corruption among the popes, including the infamous John XII, who we will be talking about in just a second. Right now, we're dealing with Agapetus II, who wanted to keep Rome and the Papal States under the papacy and had the backing of the nobles of Rome. This meant that he did not trust Otto. He was not going to give Otto anything resembling the crown because he feared that if he did, then he would have to surrender central Italy to Otto. And that was something that was just not on the table. Now, the Otto that we know would not have sat for this. He would have forced the Pope to reconsider his opinions if he had the chance to do so. However, he's not going to get the chance to deal with this Pope. You see, while he was dealing with the problems in Italy and trying to figure out whether or not he'd get the crown for the Holy Roman Empire, things in Germany had gone bad for him, had gone real south for him. Otto, having heard whispers of soon-to-be rebellions in the north, had to leave Italy, and he left it under the command of Conrad the Red. Now, Conrad was to subjugate the Italians, force Berengar to peace and solidify Otto's control in the region. And Conrad decided to do this by immediately making peace with Berengar and just wiping everything off the table. Everyone goes back to normal under Otto's rule. Berengar, of course, agreed to this. He's like, fine, sure, whatever. You're going to let me rule? I'll take it. And Otto was not exactly thrilled about this. He had been kind of hoping to punish Berengar. But again... He couldn't do anything about it because of events that are about to erupt in 953. So, here's what happens in 953. And you have to remember that there's some build-up to this that doesn't make this come out of the blue like it seems to appear in the history books. In 953, Otto wished to celebrate Easter at Aachen and found nothing prepared for him when he arrived which was more than an insult, to not be prepared to host your king. Otto, of course, demanded that compensation be had. He needed to be treated as the king that he was. Frederick, the Archbishop of Mans, tried to meditate between Otto and his son Conrad, who had been the one that was supposed to host this event. However, Otto threw a big fit because Frederick tried to maintain some sort of neutrality in the situation rather than supporting Otto. And this forced Frederick to flee from Otto and go and join what was becoming less of a dissenters club and more of a rebellion club. This rebellion club grew when, in the summer of 953, Bavaria decided to rise up in rebellion against Otto's reassertment of his power in Bavaria. Now, if you remember from last episode, we talked about how Otto had invaded Bavaria and had decided to go 
and destroy everything his father had built relationship-wise with the Bavarians. They were no longer going to basically rule themselves. They were going to be under his rule. And not everyone was thrilled about this plan, but they couldn't really do much about it because Otto was basically kicking their butts anytime they rose up in rebellion. But 953 seemed to be like the year to do it. And so the Bavarians rose up once more and joined this faction of rebels. And they actually do pretty dang well in the beginning. Rising up, they kick out all of Otto's supporters and capture his treasury. Just snatch it all. And while this is happening, Saxony, the home of Otto, rises up in rebellion under Wickman the Younger who wasn't really upset with Otto, but was upset with some of Otto's nobles. And this had led to a general feud, which Otto had stepped into when he could have just stayed back, and they blew up into rebellion because of it. Otto then made this even worse by threatening other nobles with executions and dishonorment and what have you, in order to stop them from rising up in rebellion. And these nobles go, well, if you're going to threaten us already, then we're just going to go ahead and do it. And so we see more nobles in Saxony and Thuringia rise up and join the rebels. And suddenly half the country is now fighting him. Now, Otto did try to cut this rebellion short by retaking Mons, but this failed. And the rebellion continued to grow and get stronger. So this rebellion, as I said, didn't just erupt out of nowhere or by just a series of missteps within the year 953. Otto had been causing this rebellion all since he started to centralize things under his thumb. Otto was not an easy man to get along with. It was always his way or the highway. Or really his way or no way. Because, you know, he's king. And this had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And that had led to a lot of rebellions in the early parts of his life. And we saw how he eventually dealt with all of those dissenters. But he never seemed to learn his lesson when dealing with people and trying to make, you know, some sort of in-between negotiations. It was always going to be Otto's way or rise up in rebellion and try to convince him to go another way. On top of that, there were issues that weren't even dealing with Otto, but Otto just threw himself into that was always causing a problem. Otto could never be on the fence about anything. He always had to choose a side, and we can see this when he's dealing with problems among his nobles. Now, one of the best ways for someone to deal with a problem between two people is try to maintain a neutral point of view, try to let both come out, say what they want to say, let them work out their differences, and just maintain that neutral stance between them. Otto does not do that. What Otto does is he hears one side, he hears the other side, and then whichever side he likes better, he's going to go and back 100% to the point where he will force the losing side to give in to all of the demands of the winning side. Naturally, this makes him quite a few enemies in court. So the picture that we're getting here really is just Otto is a terrible people's person. He cannot deal with anyone that doesn't see his point of view. And so 953 isn't just this random thing that pops up out of nowhere. This is just a buildup of time after time of Otto rubbing his nobles wrong, making them hate him more and more by his simple mishandling of things. And so towards the end of 953, we see Otto at 
one of his weakest points. The treasury of Bavaria has fallen to the rebels. Saxony, his own home, is in flames. He is unable to secure any of the rebels' positions. And more and more of his nobles are turning against him. And through the rest of 953 and 954, it looks like that Otto is about to lose everything. However, the year 955, all of this turns. And it's not thanks to some far-fetched ally coming out of nowhere and being the savior for Otto. It's actually another enemy that does it. You see, in 954 and 955, the Magyars decide to launch another raid into Otto's little kingdom. This turns everything around. And the rebels go from winning to war to flat out losing this war. The Magyars were the biggest threat to the empire. And everyone knew this. No one liked them. Everyone feared them. Everyone knew that they were going to be a devastation upon the kingdom if they weren't dealt with. And so when these Magyars show up and start rampaging and pillaging everything, many of the rebels drop their grievances and say, look, Otto, we're still a little bit mad, but now's not the time. We're here to help you. We are going to bend the knee in order to deal with this little problem. This little problem became a bigger problem for the rebels when word got out that not only had the Magyars arrived because the empire was in the middle of a civil war, they had arrived because someone among their ranks had invited them to. It seemed that some of the higher-ups among the rebel leadership had believed that throwing in with the Magyars and calling them in would overpower Otto and force him to come to terms, which could have happened if the entire leadership was behind this. But many of the leadership and many of their followers believed that trying to bring in the Magyars to deal with Otto was like killing the patient to solve a minor flu. So the heart of the rebellion broke when news spread about this. And many, many of the supporters left. They turned around and went to Otto and said, Look, we're sorry. We were not behind this plot against you. We had no idea this was the plan of some of the leaders. Uh, we're done with them. We're here to support you. With the desertion of so many of their rank, the rebels had the wind knocked out of their sails. And basically could do little to threaten Otto anymore. Their opportunity to win this war was lost. Within months of the word leaking out, the alliance lost all control within the region and was forced to retreat back into Bavaria, where, under Ludolf and the Bavarians, you know, those who had launched the invasion of Italy far too soon, they would stay until Henry, the man that had been established in Bavaria last episode, would come in and wipe them out, re-establishing his authority within the region. The rebellion will end with Conrad and Ludolf losing their duchies, but not their lands, while Frederick, thanks to being a bishop, of course, would never be touched. And this will be the last major threat to Otto's realm, and would represent one of the last major rebellions for quite a while. The Magyars, and also the Slavs, who would take part in the rebellion and invasion of Otto's empire, would be quick to follow the rebellion into defeat, as the Magyars' forces would be smashed in the summer of 955 at the Battle of Lechfeld, and 
would be really the last time the Magyars would serve as a true threat to the Germans. After this point, the Magyars are going to reform, uh, stop being the raiders that they had been in the past, and just become what we know today as Hungary. This would be followed up in October with the Slavic rebels and invaders being defeated by the Saxons, who would actually push further into the north and the east, taking more territory thanks to this war. It would also end with the execution of hundreds of Slavs who would be captured in the fighting against the Germans. These twin victories secured the former rebels to the Otto's banners in 955 and united the Germanic Empire under their king, who all now believed had done his duty in securing peace in the east, something that had really been eluding all previous kings in the past. The east had always been a hotbed of problems for the kingdom and had always been a thorn inside of any king. That seemed to be over. The peace that Otto secured in 955 really, really was important for his realm. It changed everything and allowed him to do what we're going to talk about in the rest of After this rebellion, no one will be able to assert themselves in Germany again against Otto. And Otto is now in full control of all internal politics. Well, except for the bishoprics, but that will come in a little bit. Over the next seven years, he will consolidate his power, putting his family in charge where they need to be, and turning many of the rulers in the land into friends or into just straight yes-men. This will prove decisive in 961 when he will make his young son Otto II his co-king and in 967 when he makes him his co-emperor and no one complains or goes back on their promises to him. Though don't think that Otto II is going to get to do much in this position as long as Otto is still alive because Otto will do everything he can to continue to run and manage the kingdom through himself. Now, after crowning his son, King, in 961, we will see Otto leaving Germany and returning to the south, where, for the next 10 out of the 12 years of his life, he will stay. This should show you how impactful his victory in 955 was to securing the peace in Germany. He doesn't have to be there for nearly the rest of his life afterwards. The land is so secure under his rule. Now, while... Otto had been busy in Germany. Italy had been doing everything in its power to basically just cause chaos. Because the nobles wanted their power back, Berengar wanted his power back, and Otto was way too busy to deal with any of it. Berengar, while Otto was busy with his little rebellion, went on ruling as though there was no one above him. I mean, who's this Otto guy? You want to calm him down? He seems a little busy to me. Try it. See what happens. He expanded his reign throughout northern Italy, demolishing the local nobles before knocking on the doors of the Papal States itself in 957, threatening to end their control of central Italy. Now, the Papal States in 957 were dramatically different from when Otto had lost talk to them, as Pope John XII was now in charge. Pope John XII is one of the more embarrassing members for the papacy. He had been born Octavianus, son of a patrician and the self-styled prince of Rome, and he may have been related through his mother's side to the king of Italy. And by king of Italy, I mean Hugh, not any of the others that we've talked about so far. 
However, he may have also been the son of a concubine. His family legacy is a little bit unclear. Whatever the case, his father doted on him, and his family had big things planned for him. And in 954, his father was able to get an oath from the Roman nobles that the next vacancy in the papacy's chair would be filled by Octavian, who was currently working his way up the ranks of the church. When his father died later that year, Octavian decided to keep his role in the church and also become the leading noble in Rome, making himself the prince of Rome in his father's stead. A year later, Pope Agapetus died, and Octavian was elected successor, and would adopt the name John Twelfth, beginning a double life that would really represent many of the popes of the papal states. One where he would be ruling as the leader of the church, the holy order, the spiritual guide for the Catholics, and the other where he served as the prince of Rome and the governing body of a central European government. John proved to be a terrible leader both as a political and religious one. His armies were beaten back when he tried to expand the empire, and his ability to rule the city of Rome was constantly challenged by the other nobles, who all realized that John was simply not his father. Meanwhile, the church was anguishing under his rule, as he did little more than encourage the spread of the church, but offered very little support to do so. It also did not help that when anyone came to visit John, they would find that the Pope lived a life of luxury and had a very strong taste for women. Berengar took advantage of John uh, when John's invasion failed and invaded the Papal States himself, forcing the Pope to appeal to Otto and offering anything, anything, if he could get Berengar under control. Otto, hearing about the problems of the Pope, immediately made his son his co-king and left him in Germany while he marched down into Italy to secure the Pope. Once more, Otto's advance into Italy was barely resisted. The army reaches Rome by the end of January 962, having left in December of 961. When arriving in the city of Rome, Otto told the Pope that he was there to collect the debt that was owed. Didn't matter that Berengar technically hadn't been defeated in battle. Didn't matter that technically he hadn't really truly dealt with Berengar yet. He had secured the city of Rome. He had secured the Papal States. It was time for the Pope to pay up. And uh, if you're thinking about backing out of this, huh, oddly enough, I have my army right here to give me a little bit of leverage. Now, Berengar had not resisted. He had decided to retreat once more to his strongholds surrendering the entire countryside to Otto and just wait to, for Otto to leave once more, believing that, you know, once Otto got what he wanted, he would go back to Germany and Berengar would be able to reassert himself, not realizing that this was not going to happen the second time around. So Otto, in Rome, is able to easily convince the outmaneuvered Pope to crown him. And February 2nd, 962... Otto is going to be crowned emperor, and his wife, Adelaide, empress. Under his banner, the emperor now controls the crowns of Italy and Germany, which will stay connected under the Holy Roman Empire until Napoleon comes along and blows it up in the 1800s. Ten days after this coronation, with the Pope still very uncomfortable with the 
King's sword, or I should say now Emperor's sword, at his back, they meet once more to discuss some of Otto's pet projects. Some things that he'd really been wanting to do in Germany, but darn it all, just couldn't be able to do with the other popes because they technically had more power in his lands than he did when it came to the church. And, oh, I guess now would be a good time to just reconsider that. Don't you think so, Pope? Hmm? Hmm? Pope, of course, gladly agrees to all this. Anything you say, Emperor, please, please put the sword away. Let's talk. And over the next ten days, they talk about this. Many of Otto's projects are approved, including the Archdiocese of Magdeburg, something that Otto had been wanting to create since basically he got on the throne. Otto had been trying to decentralize the power of the church within Germany, and by creating more of these, he was able to do so. In trade for this, John XII was confirmed as the spiritual ruler, while Otto was to become the papacy's protector on earth. Which really was like, yeah, sure, you can control my soul. I controlled the here and now. Well, that is, except for outside of the papal states, which was to stay under the pope's domain. There was also other territories that Otto was supposed to give to the Pope, but oddly enough, they just never seemed to make it to him. They must have gotten lost in the mail. Happens all the time, my dear Pope. After this meeting and this understanding was set up between the two, Otto left Rome. He had gotten everything he wanted from John, and now it was time to deal with Berengar. Otto would lay siege to Berengar and force him to eventually surrender in 963 causing a new wave of fears to rise up among the Italian nobles and the Pope that Otto was now going to rule unopposed. As such, after the surrender of Berengar, John opened up talks with Aldebert, who was the son of Berengar and had not been captured with his father. He had this crazy scheme to depose Otto and sent out letters of aid to both the Magyars and the Byzantines. Otto intercepted these letters and immediately marched over to John and said, Hey, I accidentally opened some of your mail. You want to talk about it? And so in December of 963, John, realizing that things are not going to go his way, gladly agrees to give up the papacy because clearly he's just not, he's not set up for this. And maybe, maybe they should go with Otto's choice. And Otto puts in Leo VIII. But... Just because Otto wants Leo in power doesn't mean Rome wants Leo in power. And so as soon as Otto leaves, Leo is driven out by many of Rome's nobles who actually decide they want John back. Because, you know, they're at least his pope. And John is suddenly reinstated. Otto, of course, turns around when this happens and marches back to Rome ready to lay siege to it and force Leo back onto the throne. It's going to be his pope or no pope. John, of course, is caught in the middle of all this and decides that he needs to have a little break, a little celebration for himself just to relax, and goes to meet one of his many lovers. And according to legend, one of his lovers is married, and the husband comes home to find the pope in his bed and, well, defenestrates him, casting him out the window and ending the life of John Twelfth. Despite the fact that John is now dead, uh, Otto will still lay siege to the city and force the city to accept that your new pope is Leo. All praise Leo. After all this had been handled, Otto will return back to Germany 
in January of 965, three years after having left it. While there, he'll do some maintenance. He'll break up his eastern march among several nobles, weakening the political threat the east could serve to him, as well as keeping the land safe from many Slavic threats that could be had. Otto would stay in Germany until word reached them that Adalbert, the son of the deposed Berengar, had risen up in rebellion. This was because John XIII, Leo's replacement after he had died, had been forced to go to war with Adalbert, and was now fleeing from Adalbert's little rebellion. John called upon Otto for help, and as such, in the fall of 965, Otto would leave his son, co-emperor, and king, and make his illegitimate son, the Archbishop of Mons, as the regent never really returning to Germany until his death. This would be Otto's third trip to Italy to put down the chaos of the peninsula. And just like the first two, it was extremely successful in the beginning. He arrives and he'll sweep away all resistance and put John XIII back on the throne. He then captures the leaders of the rebellion and has them hung in Rome to serve as an example to the people. He then decides to set up shop in Rome for a bit because Italy is clearly not staying under his thumb and maybe Otto just needs to sit here for a while and force them to accept that Otto is here for life. Otto starts to push further south at this point, having basically made the Papal States into a little puppet of his own, pushing south into the Byzantines. The Byzantines, who had always saw themselves as the true successors of Rome and not this jumpstart German, decided that, you know what, we're not just going to sit here and let you do this. And so a little war broke out between Otto and the Byzantines. However, the Byzantines are unable to make any headway against Otto. They, like Otto, had very little support in Italy. However, unlike Otto... It was a lot more expensive and a lot more time-consuming to get reinforcements onto the peninsula. As such, the Byzantines would have to reach out in the winter of 967 to make peace, and were handed a few of Otto's typical demands. One was to accept the German control of the peninsula. The other was to tie the Macedonian dynasty with the Ottonians. Marriage was a necessity, and the bride was going to be the price to be married to Otto II, the future ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. This took quite a bit of wrangling, and the Byzantines were not going to easily swallow this without some more fighting. And so it wouldn't be until three years later that the bride of these negotiations would be handed over, and peace would finally reign between the two. With her arrival and peace finally settled between the Byzantines and the Germans, Otto would finally be done with Italy. He'd turn around and we'd go back to Germany in August of 972 and would spend the winter and spring there. In 973, he will celebrate Easter in Magdeburg and receive the Dukes of Poland, Bohemia, the legates of the Greeks and Rome, the leaders of the Magyars, the Bulgars, the Danes, and the Slavs, and they would be followed by delegates from England and the Muslim Spanish kingdoms. All would come to pay homage and deal with the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, 
the most powerful man on the continent. This would be the peak of power for Otto, and this would represent all of Otto's life's work. Later that year, Otto would retire to the family palace and become sick, passing away on May 7th, the age of 60. His funeral was a 30-day long event because, naturally, any the greats deserves a long funeral. Otto II would be sitting in the middle of all this, and everyone from England to modern-day Turkey was wondering how this young man, only 17 years old, was going to rule the mighty empire his father had just left him. Otto was a complicated character, just as any the great should be. Yes, he regained the crown and Italy, but there were a few times, especially against the rebellions in his own home territory, where the question of how long he would stay in power became a main concern. Part of this was due to the overwhelming issues rising up thanks to outside threats, the Magyars and the Slavs, but a lot of it came from his heavy-handed treatment of his nobles. We have a few times where many of the rebels were switching sides just because Otto refused to bend either to simple demand or to a friendly desire to make peace. Otto was not a man of negotiation. He was a man of action. His action. Seriously, it just seemed that Otto was just going to be so stubborn he was going to bring his kingdom to collapse. But in the end, it worked out. He came out with his head intact and his kingdom under thumb. No one can say in 973 that Otto had not completed most of his objectives. He ruled all of East Francia. He ruled Italy. He held power over the church. He had under his vassals West Francia, the Papal States. He had pushed the Byzantines off of his territory. He had forced the Magyars and the Slavs to accept his control of Eastern Europe, all the while forcing his nobles to stay under his thumb and getting the lands of the Italians, one of the most chaotic places at this time in Europe, to bend the knee. Yes, Otto made a lot of mistakes, but you really can't argue with his results. Alright, that will do it for now. I want you to note that there will be a slight change in probably how I sound next time because I will be in a new place. Yes, I'm moving once more. But we'll just have to see how I sound next time. I hope you all have a wonderful month and I will see you in my new place. <laughs>